Blog Talk Radio. Just click on the start arrow. Remember, it must be at 3 p.m. 
or you will be given the message that the show has not begun. Many just call in the show at 213-816-1611. This will put you on the producer's board, and all you have to do to share your comments or join our discussion is to touch the number one number on, on your smartphone keyboard. That will tell the producer to unmute your phone's microphone. Then just join in the fun. Now you can choose to listen or talk to our host. Now let's go up to uh, Long Island, New York, and talk to Mike Scott. Thanks, Don. Uh, last week's episode 11, we shared uh, Reaper T stories about unusual radio communications, the scientific diagnosis of airline flying and who gets the bad letter. Fun stories to share. Here the stories written by the men and women of Eastern Airlines with us each week. These stories are written by the pilots who flew for airplanes for Pitcairn Aviation, Eastern Air Transport, and Eastern Airlines. And now, Mr. Producer, I understand you have a sound clip for our first story. The Martin 404, or better known as Eastern's Workhorse. Written by Captain Bill Malone, editor of Repartee in 1995. The first big step ahead in the way of twin-engine aircraft development for Eastern Airlines after World War II came in the form of the Martin 404. Eastern promptly named her the Silver Falcon. Although the name was appropriate and smacked of the beauty and speed of that noble bird, the airplane was always referred to with affection as the Martin by Eastern pilots who flew her. Word was that Captain Eddie Rickenbacker got a great deal from the Glenel Martin Company, but whatever he provided his aviators with something new containing all the innovations of the time and laid down the challenge for them to call upon all of their resources to make the new aircraft a success. Memories of the rich experience that followed will always be with those who had the pleasure of flying the Martins. It is sad to think that it took a war to get aviation off the back burner, but up until World War II, aviation had not begun to realize its potential. Jimmy Doolittle was rounding the pylons in his little GB Super Sportster R1 an aircraft with such stubby wings and huge engine, it looked like an engine with wings added as an afterthought. Few even survived a ride in the deadly little racing plane. Our own Jerry Wood was barnstorming around the nation in his trimotor Ford. The Charles brothers, Shelley and Paul, had been operating their airport in Gettysburg and competing in the Transcontinental Air Derby from New York to Los Angeles. Doug Davis had won the Thompson Trophy in his travel air mystery ship Wilkins and Erickson. Post Gaddy, Amelia Earhart, Howard Hughes, and the Lindberghs were setting every kind of record all over the world. Roscoe Turner was hauling such notables as movie stars Clark Gable, Loretta Young, Fred McMurray, and Joan Bennett back and forth from Hollywood to Las Vegas in his Nevada Airlines Lockheed Vegas. 
But in spite of all this, aviation was more for the adventurous and the rest of us sat by and watched or went out to the airport to see the night mail plane land. By the outbreak of World War II, aviation had advanced from the night mail to the Douglas DC-3, and those with high priority were traveling by air to to meet the demands of the war. Douglas developed the four-engine DC-4 and Lockheed, the four-engine Constellation. It was after the war that more sophisticated twin-engine aircraft came along to meet the needs of local short-haul flights. Up to this time, those of us who had come to Eastern from the military after the war were thrilled to learn from the airline pilots how to apply the principles of radio navigation in a practical way. We were shown that operations in snow, ice, and fog could be routine. Now came the first in what was to be a steady stream of technical improvements in the advance of aviation. For many of us, it began with the appearance on the scene of the Martin 404. The Martin was the first of our twin-engine aircraft so complicated that it required the use of a checklist. It was a marvel of scientific engineering. Everything seemed to operate from an electronic solenoid. Jokingly, some of us referred to it as the flying solenoid while we were studying its technical intricacies attending school down in Miami. Most of us stayed across from the Eastern Airlines office on 36th Street at the old Gateway Hotel. All down the halls, you could hear the pilots reciting the procedures and technical data they were required to know. We hadn't studied that hard, even in college. It was a welcome relief to take a break for dinner and retreat to the Sunshine Bar and Grill, where you could listen to Frank Bennett and Bud Holman tell their spellbinding stories of safaris in Africa. Bud was station manager in Vero Beach and part owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers baseball team, while Frank was one of the Eastern senior pilots. In his deep bass voice, Frank would say, If you hunt lion often enough, you are bound to get some claws in you. And we would imagine the feel of hot breath on the back of our necks from the lion. We wondered if the rattlesnakes out in the palmettos were really as big as your leg, as related by Frank. An introductory flight in the Martin was a thrill to remember. It had the big Pratt & Whitney R2800 engines that served us so well in World War II. Some of our pilots made it back to the aircraft carrier with two or three of its cylinders shot away. The liquid-cooled Allisons would seize if a bullet was taken in the radiator. By virtue of water injection, power on the Martin engines was boosted up to 59.5 inches of mercury for takeoff. This was only used in condition of combat during the war. The big paddle blade props with their square tips gave you a feeling of confidence when power was applied. For the first time, we realized how much power was lost in the hot summertime as we observed the BME P gauges that indicated brake mean effective power at the crankshaft. 
To compensate for this, Eastern kept the maximum gross takeoff weight at 43,600 pounds instead of the 44,900 pounds for which the aircraft was certificated. It had to do with single-engine performance to carry the Martin through the critical point in takeoff, the FAA required that the aircraft utilize an auto feather feature for the propellers that none of us liked. Later, it nearly caused the demise of those of one of, the, of our flights. Adding to the challenge of flying the Martin was its unusual characteristics. It had what became known as a walking gear. Not only did the landing gear move up and down to cushion the landing, it moved forward and aft with the nose of the aircraft elevated for a landing approaching a stall. The main landing gear would be extended forward. The geometry of the gear would sometimes cause a bumpy landing as it moved aft when the tires touched the runway. During engine run-up, at the beginning of the runway, it was necessary to add power as the ship came to a stop in order to extend the walking gear and avoid a lurch. Both engines had to be run up and tested simultaneously. When the power was reduced, it was necessary to release the brakes and allow the struts to move forward to their normal position. Then the aircraft had to be brought to a smooth stop with the power reduced to idle. It didn't pose a problem. It was just different. Before aircraft hijacking to Cuba took place, we, we flew the, with the cockpit door open for better ventilation. In the Martin, we had to discontinue this practice because of the steep glide angle with full flaps. If you looked forward through the cockpit door from back in the cabin, it seemed as though the airplane was going to do a somersault. With its big trailing edge landing flaps, the Martin could get in just about everywhere. Flight 574 made 13 stops between Boston and Atlanta. Landings were made at places such as Danville, Virginia, and Anderson, South Carolina, having only non-directional radio beacons for instrument uh, approaches. In the Martin, we often crawled in on our hands and knees with a 300-foot ceiling at such places. Such was the confidence we had in the airplane. We look back with some amusement at how we struggled to control with operational problems. The Martin carried 44 passengers, but only one flight attendant. Some of the meal services were on short flight segments, so if the weather permitted, one of us would come back from the cockpit to help by setting up the meal trays. On one flight, a new co-pilot was landing the flight, handling the flight duties while the captain assisted the stewardess and was making frequent checks of the cockpit from the galley. As they drew near to their destination, the meal service had not been completed. The co-pilot asked what he should do now. The captain says, make a couple of circles and tell the tower the captain hasn't finished making his in-flight announcements. To prevent ice from forming on the windshield, the Martin incorporated two panes of glass with a space in between for heated air. This got rid of the ice, but also heated the inner pane. 
We used to say that it fried your eyeballs when windshield heat was needed for extended periods of time. The airplane did very well with its heated wings, but there was one instance that gave some of us rather anxious moments. One night, while flying our flight, uh, while our flights were on the ground at Louisville, a heavy icing condition descended over the airport. The first airplane to depart encountered severe buffeting upon raising the flaps after takeoff. A cardinal rule in aviation is to go back to the original configuration when something goes wrong. When the flaps were lowered back to the takeoff position, the buffeting ceased. It was obvious that each departing plane was encountering this, but each crew was reluctant to reveal any sense of alarm because Captain Jim Talton was in the first plane to take off. Talton was one of, of, of the patrol plane commanders who flew the Navy's Mars flying boats and an aviator of such fame that one would be ashamed to display fear in his presence. The radio was unusually quiet, and even those in the control tower felt the tension. But the only clue to what was happening was the brief communications or transmissions. Are you, are you getting it too? And the answer, yeah. Eventually, each airplane climbed above the icing conditions, which was confined to an area near the surface, and the buffeting ceased. The experience, however, set off one of the most comprehensive testing programs known at the time. Tests revealed that ice had formed in the wing fillets where the wings joined the fuselage, creating an in interruption of the normal airflow. Although it made for an uncomfortable ride, it posed no danger. Pilots were cautioned to use wings, wing heat when icing was anticipated and prior to it being encountered. An icing condition once occurred at LaGuardia that required all the ingenuity our captain could muster. The temperature stood at 32 degrees and heavy snow was falling restricting visibility to one half mile. A Douglas DC-4 from another airline took off and encountered severe carburetor ice, which happened suddenly and without warning, causing all four engines to quit. The pilot had just completed his left turn and was left with no choice but to crash on Rikers Island. It was a miracle he avoided hitting Edison Tank. Prisoners were released to aid in the rescue efforts, which were hampered by the heavy falling snow. Immediately after the DC-4 departed, Captain George Boast was next to take off in one of our Martins. Before the pilots in the DC-3 or 4 were able to report their encounter with the severe icing, George was airborne. Both engines iced up. One engine was lost as it auto-feathered, and the other was only developing 25% power. This low power was insufficient to produce the required carburetor heat. George Bose told us that by this time he was so deep in the well that he had his hand on the flap handle preparing to land in Flushing Bay. Then he resorted to an old airmail pilot trick. 
he turned the ignition switch off and back on and the engines with the engine still running causing it to backfire and blow the ice out the co-pilot reported that the other engine had auto feathered george told him to see if he could unfeather it in the in the words of george boast it unfeathered at takeoff power but it sure sounded good by this time they were down on the water with both engines running but unsure as to whether they would fly under Whitestone Bridge or over it from this precarious position. George and his co-pilot succeeded in climbing out of the icing conditions without further occurrence and proceeded along their, their way, but not without serious misgivings over what had occurred. In 1960, Captain Rudy Engel and co-pilot Gene Stevens suffered a mid-air collision with a Beechcraft Bonanza over Florida. The following is an account in Gene Stevens' own words. On October 1st, 1960, Captain Buddy or Rudy Engel and I were uh, southbound from Jacksonville to Orlando on Flight 667. The aircraft was 466, a Martin 404. Approach control cleared us into the traffic pattern, and we contacted the tower. We requested uh, and received clearance for a right turn into runway 31. Traffic was given at a, as a light aircraft on final, which we saw, and possible VFR traffic coming in from Merritt Island. While descending through 1,200 feet, I heard a low roar and saw a blur go by the windshield. Simultaneously, a very bad blow to the right side of the aircraft with a severe yaw was felt. Severe vibrations followed this. Captain Engel did a great job of flying the aircraft. He had to keep it as slow as possible because the vibration increased with airspeed. We declared an emergency, but... Uh, but uh, had not lost our hydraulics, had, so we extended the gear normally and landed. Some of the passengers were not aware that anything had happened. The aircraft that hit us was a Beechcraft Bonanza. The Bonanza pilot was killed when he crashed about 10 miles north. One passenger remarked, you will have to have that wing fixed before you, you leave here. This, of course, are isolated incidents in the history of this remarkable airplane. Although its big engines were pushed to the limit on every takeoff, they served us so well. It is difficult to even recall a single engine failure. Looking back, one is inclined to remember the many smooth and comfortable flights we made in the Martins. The close proximity of the pilots in the cockpit cemented lasting friendships. Their performance drew forth admiration from anyone riding the jump seat. Those of us who were privileged to fly the Martins look back on an experience with great pride and nostalgia. I'm sorry, Don, would you comp uh, continue? Or, let's see. No, I guess. Sure. 
Uh, Chuck, you're up next. Uh, let me open your microphone here. Go ahead, Chuck. Am I open now? Yeah, you're open now. Yeah. <laughs> I okay. wouldn't sleep. Uh, that reminds me of a sound clip that we have used a few times over the years about this amazing aircraft. Mr. Producer, do you know which one that I'm talking about? Yeah, here it is. Now comes the story of a very popular... That's that's the, the wrong one. I didn't load it in correctly, so uh, forgive me. We did have the sound, but uh, I got it in wrong. Uh, Jim, let's see. I guess that would be uh, you, Don, Don or uh, whoever it is. Let's, let's see. I got this is a fun thing about kitchen table radio. I have so much fun trying to screw up here. <laughs> Whoever, go ahead and take the next one. I'll do it then, Neil. Yeah. Um, I'm here to tell you about where the connection uh, of the 404 is to the East, to Eastern Airlines. The Martin 404 was designed by Glenn Martin who established one of the first aircraft factories in 1909. That's only about six years after the Wright brothers' first flight. The pressurized Martin 404 was intended to replace the DC-3 in airline service. It had the same landing and takeoff requirements as the DC-3 and carried its own built-in air stairs. At 40 passengers, the 404 nearly doubled the capacity of the DC-3, which held between 21 and 24, with a cruise speed of 280 miles per hour, and it was over 100 miles an hour faster than the DC-3. Only 103 Martin 404s were built. Eastern Airlines took delivery of 60 Silver Falklands, and TWA had 40 Skyliners. Our Martin 404 serial number 14142 was delivered to Eastern Airlines in February of 1952. It flew for 13 years for Eastern, and in 1965, it went to Southern Airways, where they operated their 404s in the Southern United States for a number of years. After Southern, N145S flew for Air Florida and then later was parked in storage. With a bank owning N145S, it sat on a ramp in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, awaiting its fate. An alert AHM member learned of it, and after 18 months of negotiations with the bank, AHM took possession of the Martin 404. The purchase of the aircraft included Martin Spare Parts, which probably the world's largest collection of Martin Spares. In 1993, the aircraft was relatively good shape, so after some work and a paint job, Skyliner Kansas City, that they called it, served 8HM for several years on the air show circuit. It is now on static display at AHM and is one of the only a handful of Martin 404s left in existence. Let's listen. Raindrops are falling. 
seems to fit Those raindrops are falling on my head They keep falling So I just did me some talking to the sun And I said I didn't like the way he got things done Sleeping on the job In the 1978 issue of Repartee Editor Captain Rollo Owens placed this story, titled Captain Dozier Morpheus. Back in the middle and late 30s, before the days of ATC control towers, flight following, and the new everyday or now everyday annoyances that plague pilots, the long night flights were an excellent place for some of the more rank conscious and selfish captains to catch up on their sleep at the expense of their subservient, tough, nonetheless resentful co-pilots. There was one such individual whom I will call Captain Dozier Morpheus to protect his anonymity. For the same reason, I will identify his co-pilot as Mildon Meek. Now, old Dozy, as Captain Morpheus was usually called, flew a trip that originated in Newark at 10 p.m., at about midnight, it departed Washington for a long four-and-a-half-hour flight to Jacksonville and then continued on to Miami to where it arrived with the morning sun shining into the droopy eyes of the very tired crew. It was old Dozy's habit to fly the short hop to Washington during the hours that his usual sleeping routine was not being violated by the hour. So as soon as the takeoff from Washington had been completed, he would drop his seat all the way down, run it as far back as it would go, and dim the lights to a mere flicker. Then he would wrap himself into a blanket cocoon and demand his co-pilot to wake me up before we get to Jacksonville and go into a deep, profound journey into the netherland of somnolence. Now, poor old Mild and Meek, his eyelids feeling like two hot stove lids and consuming staggering amounts of what was passed for coffee, guided his aluminum steel through the late night gloom until, many hours later, he would gently tap old Dozy on the shoulder and announce, We're coming up to Jacksonville. Thereupon, Captain Morpheus, refreshed by his long nap, would stretch, readjust his seat, and take over again to make the landing. This same routine continued for month after month with co-pilot Meek developing an ever-deepening hatred for Captain Morpheus. Finally, one late autumn night, old Dozy took off at Washington, climbed up through a thin layer of clouds, and leveled the DC-2 off at 2,000 feet. He went through his usual preparations and told his patient, though resentful assistant, just stay on top of this cloud layer and wake me up before we get to Jacksonville. Yes, sir, Captain, answered Mildon, just barely able to keep the disgust and hatred from showing. Hours later, with the last quarter moon beginning to hide itself on the western horizon, a strangely alert co-pilot, Meek, 
tapped his soundly sleeping superior on the shoulder and announced, Captain Morpheus, we're nearly at Jacksonville. Old Dozy slowly came back into the real world. He belched loudly, scratched himself thoroughly, stretched, gave a prodigious yawn, and looked out through the windshield. The plane was sailing through the night sky. The tops of the clouds were still about 500 feet below them. The altimeter needle was glued on the 2,000-foot mark. Through the headphones could be heard the steady drone of the on-course signal from the Jacksonville range station. Okay, Mildy, he announced. I got it. Now let's get one fact on the record. For all his thoughtfulness, Dozia Morpheus was a very fine pilot. He was calm, smooth, possessed a great feel of the plane, and had been flying for a long time. So when he took over the controls and began to make his approach into Jacksonville, he flew the plane in the way it was supposed to be flown. He passed over the range station at precisely 2,000 feet on the altimeter, made a smooth turn to the east, and pinned down the outbound leg with a single correction. He made his procedure turn at exactly 1,500 feet, crossed the range one final, on final at exactly 700 feet, and let down until the needle on the altimeter showed directly on 300 feet. Nothing could be seen but the gray, opaque mist. There was not the slightest indication of light on the ground. Mist approach, yelled Captain Morpheus. Up gear. We'll go back out and try it again. The same precise procedure was followed with exactly the same result. At the final approach altitude, there was nothing but clouds visible. If old Dozy had been a little more observant, he might have detected a strange, almost self-satisfied smile flickering over Malden's usually bland countenance. But Captain Morpheus was in no mood to observe subtleties. Trip 3 to Jacksonville, I bellowed Morpheus on the radio mic. What kind of a ceiling have you got down there? No change for the past three hours, came back the response. We're still reporting 9,512 miles visibility. It was then that Captain Dozia Morpheus began to understand what he had been made the victim of. As instructed by his captain, co-pilot Meek had stayed above the cloud deck, but in order to do so, it had been necessary for him to make an almost unperceptible climb out since leaving Washington. Instead of cruising at 2,000 feet, they were actually at 12,000 feet. At 12,000 feet, the altimeters in use in those days presented almost exactly the same appearance that they would at 2,000. The only difference being the position of a tiny little pointer that recorded having passed 10,000 feet. This little pointer was seldom observed because of the rarity with which planes ever got to above 10,000 feet. In this case, old Dozy failed to observe it. Mildon, seeing an opportunity to get a measure of revenge for his many sleepless, lonely nights, 
did not bother to alert his captain to the fact that they were at such a high altitude. Thus, when the approach was made, instead of descending to 300 feet as called for, old Dozy was descending to 10,000 feet, which was right in the middle of a cloud layer which obscured the ground in the same way that low clouds would hide the ground in a normal approach. Mild and Meek knew that his method of getting even placed him in no jeopardy because of Captain Morpheus made a if he made a complaint it would have been an admission that he had been sleeping, which is a real no no even in those easy going days. Not only that, he knew that if the word ever got out on the airline that he had missed two approaches with a ninety five hundred foot ceiling the raging, the right nagging he would get would be too high a price to pay to get back at Mild and Meek. The matter was soon forgotten. Later, old Mildon contrived his own way to combat captains with a propensity for sleeping in the cockpit. When the captain announced that he was going to take a nap, Mildon would answer, Sure, go ahead, but if you wake up and find me sleeping, just punch me. It worked every time. Every time. <laughs> okay, Mike. That's scary. Yes. <clears throat> okay. That was uh, that had to be one of the most original ideas of getting back to the mean guy in the left seat, or as last week's show called him, senior character that I've ever heard. Now that we are no longer flying the line carrying passengers, I wonder if any of the pilots on the show would be willing to tell about their experience with sleep uh, depression or how they solve the sleeping problem. I guess I'll go first. Okay. Well, in, in our operation, we used to uh, watch the other guys when they started doing the long blinks and they were and they were uh, falling asleep a little at a time. So we always we'd say, okay. We got whatever job you got, and you could take 10 or 15 minutes. And that's all it used to take to revive us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's just one show, because I want one episode, but we want to get on with the show here. We can tell you more well, later. Y- you know, I, I too, used to fly the Moonlight Special, and being the Moonlight Special, you know, you sleep through the night and uh, on the Airbus, and uh, I would always get out a book uh, on the long legs, and I'd turn on the map light. Of course, the cockpit was very dark. Turn on that little uh, map light that shone down uh, to the book that I was reading, and of course, it would never change pages. It would always stay on the page that I had opened to for several hours. <laughs> but you got you got it when you could. That's the the way exactly. we did it. Yeah. But um, it was a lot of fun back in those days. Yeah, I want sure this was. next one. This next one is really hilarious. Uh, um, I think you've got that one. Uh, somebody has. Chuck, Chuck's got it. Okay, Chuck. Uh, now comes an article titled, Halfway Around the World on 98 Cents. Now, this one sounds good. This is a, this is a short one, but I think you'll really enjoy it. This is a short one, and it's the last one. Another popular area of repartee is the mailbag, where pilots send in their thoughts, like the one that Bob Shipner sent 
in the 1981 issue of Repartee. One important lesson I learned while flying the MAC, that's the military air command, with Captain Sonny Seaman was how to go halfway around the world and back with two days in Hawaii each way and only spend $1.68 on the entire trip. He was my hero until I flew with Captain Buffkin Fairchild, who made the same trip on 94 cents. Far be it for me to say that these two fine gentlemen are close with the buck. But whenever they would open their change purses in the cockpit, we would be killing moths halfway across the Pacific. I also had the distinction of flying with Captain Vern Peterson on his last trip while on the Mac. I'll never forget the little spit and polished Marine Corporal who was guarding the gate to Pearl Harbor when we pulled up to the gate in our rented car. We were getting a bit of a rough time from him until Vern whipped out his ID card, which identified him as Marine General Vernon A. Peterson. I thought the little Marine would knock himself out with the karate chop salute he gave to General Vern. Vern's only comment to me was, gee, I hate to do that, but I guess sometimes you have to. Yeah, that was a good one. He was, uh, I never flew with Vern Peterson, but I understand uh, the guys really enjoyed flying with him. Well, I'm sure you would like to know how he spent that much. He must not have had much left when the aircraft, and in Hawaii, he had to tip the driver for transport to the hotel and back. Oh, well, I've known misers, too. If you could uh, cite an example here, um, please do so. Otherwise, just kind of leave it at that. I bet when they send their pajamas to the laundry, they stuff a sock in each pocket. Kitchen table when radio. they go to McDonald's, they put back that car up to the window so the cashier must be on the passenger side. I had to get those two in about frugalness. <laughs> you did okay. That was, that's, that's, uh, huh? That backed the car up. That was good. Yeah. Well, we had captains that would always tip a quarter no matter what it was, whether it was uh, taking uh, the limousine, the Fugazi limo from the airports in New York to downtown. Uh, he'd bring out his quarter. <laughs> the rest of us was tipping at a dollar to five dollars, you know, whatever, whatever uh, was in. But uh, twenty-five cent was really an embarrassment in those days. But oh well, those guys were the captains, and uh, they were making the big bucks, and uh, um, we couldn't complain about that. They were the senior characters, as we described them last week. Okay, Any uh, anything going on with you guys here for the past week? Well, I hear they're going to um, renovate the 777 and try to get it going because obviously they're not um, 
selling the aircraft the way it's configured. So they've, uh, you know, they're going to come up with this uh, seating arrangements that we talked about the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, uh, you have the in the middle, you have two, and then one up or one back, which will give you uh, distance. And then uh, I, the only thing I can't understand is, is we had uh, a story told to us about the seats getting closer. Now, as you most of the people know, that I, I was a mechanic with Eastern for quite a long while until I went into supervision. And the seat pitch for 727s and just about almost everything except the bigger 1011s, of course, and stuff, that pitch was 27 inches, which was from cigarette cup to cigarette cup back in those days. Of course, they don't have them anymore. And now I understand when we were discussing that, that pitch, they call that pitch, it is going to be squeezed up to almost just 20. Can you imagine somebody 6'3", 6'4", sitting in one of those seats and trying to be comfortable for, uh, say, a four-hour flight? So these are some of the things that you might want to keep a watch out for in the uh, publications to see how they're going to solve this um, virus problem on aircraft by uh, pitching the seats different. I uh, one time I did a 1011, and it was going to go to Cathay Pacific, which is Chinese, and they sent me up to the um, supervisor's uh, booth and said, God, uh, we need you to go over to the wood shop. They've got some wood for you." I said, "Wood? What do you want? Wood in a 1011?" He says, "Go get it. You'll find out." And I come back. And they had chopped off about a four-inch block with two holes in it. And I brought them back, and uh, I, I asked my lead man, I said, what's that for? He says, that's for the pedals. I said, what do you mean? He says, here's the bolt that goes through those two holes there. Go put one block on one side of the pedal and another block on the other side and bolt them together. I, I said, why is that? He says, because the pilots can't touch the rudder pedals, even if they're all the way back. <laughs> so on that plane, they put over 400 people. And this was back in the probably 80s. So and uh, uh, that's probably yeah. pushing the limits, 10-11. Yeah. Uh, Mike, your uh, transmitter is giving me a feedback, an echo feedback like it had. Before I don't know whether you got a headset with a microphone or what. Oh no, I got a I got a landline. I don't know why it's. Let, it's let me let me call it back feedback. again. That's all right. Whatever we can put up with it. Uh, anyhow, uh, yeah, I, I'll ask you this, uh, Chuck, if you know, when they reconfigure these uh, seats in the airplane with one facing. Uh, north and the other one facing south. Um, that that can't that, that has to be recertified, uh, configured, doesn't it? Go through the FAA and all the whole shebang, doesn't it? Yeah, but one of the things that you might not realize is, is you're going to lose about three rows of seats as it goes towards the back of the airplane. You know, where the three 
bathrooms yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Five bathrooms, I think there are. There's a petition in front of them, which means the seats can't go back any farther than that partition because you can't get reclined in the middle yeah. three seats. That's so right. they're going to have to take out about three rows of seats to get this configuration that you're talking about so that the people are comfortable. Yeah. And I'm going to see if the airlines are going to uh, squawk about that because, you know, three rows of seats is a lot of revenue. Yeah. And you're going to multiply it, but, uh, you know, it's, uh, revenue is kind of hard right now. I got yeah. a Netflix for Spirit, and a lot of times they just uh, – they uh, ferry the planes with no people in them just to get them positioned. Yeah. Okay, Mike, you're coming in real go. good, Mike. Okay. <laughs> Don't you think Dorothy? they're going to have to uh, increase their prices in order to maintain some revenue at all? Well, you can only increase your price to a certain limit, and then you price yourself out of the market. That's the problem. All the big well, airlines the market now, is- if you look at them, are on the on the financial edge. I would think. Um, well, Mike could probably tell us a little more about that. Uh, how are they doing financially? Do you know? I really don't know. I haven't been paying a whole lot of attention to it. We haven't been getting. I used to get a lot of emails from various guys uh, letting me know what was going on with a lot of this stuff, but it. It kind of slowed down, and it's all these things talking about uh, what they were going to fly and what they weren't going to fly and what was parked and what was going to be flying and where they were going to go versus where they weren't going to go. But, and how, you know, I just haven't received uh, any more uh, yeah. of the latest information from anybody on it. So I guess it's it's kind of slowed down a little bit. But I don't think they have anything to send because they're not moving anything. They're not going any destination. Yeah. They can't go any destinations. What a lot of people don't understand, and uh, when I, after I made supervision, I work in tech service supervisor. Uh, actually, I talked to the pilots most of my day. Um, was that you learn a lot of different things about Eastern Airlines, and one of the things, even back in the uh, '80s, when I was a supervisor there, we had to make as little as $27 per seat mile. Now, you know that's gone up over the years, and now with all these planes sitting around, I believe the 737 MAX, they got over 400 sitting on the ground. And another thing you have to realize, they have to pay insurance on those airplanes. They can't just call up the insurance company and say, well, I'm not flying. That's, That's like you parking your car in the driveway and calling up the insurance company and saying, well, I'm not going to drive it for six months, so I don't want to pay my premiums. And, of course, the you know, airlines. You know, uh, Chuck, I've wondered and I thought about having a show, but it take a lot of research, and I wouldn't know where to begin. But in the, more, in the real estate and mortgage business, which I used to be a realtor and a mortgage broker lender, uh, you know what happens when you don't make your payments, and that's uh, the banks foreclose, and, of course, then they offer it uh, on a, an auction basis. And um, I just wondered what the process is for all those airplanes sitting out there on the desert uh, in abandoned airports or wherever. 
these payments that the companies are supposed to be making, uh, mortgage payments on those airplanes or lease payments on those airplanes, just what's happening and, and how these companies that are in business like Ed Weagle. Ed Weagle went into the airline leasing business. Yes, he did. And and uh, his company was over in Ireland, but their headquarters was down in Miami on Brickell Avenue. And it's it would be interesting to find out exactly, you know, how bad they're suffering because they've got to really be taking the hit. Well, it's a, quite a snowball effect because the air, airlines can't make their their payments yeah. uh, to the leasee, to the leasers, and the yeah. leasers can't make their payments to the banks. So it kind of keeps going. Yeah. It goes in both directions. No matter which way you push into the the middle row of the, of the dominoes, they they go in both directions. So that's, that's right. Typical. Yeah. But you got to well, realize that. What happened to all that bailout money? That's right. Yeah. What's it happened to that? Bailout money. Yeah. Um, well, it'll be interesting to see how this all shakes out. Yeah. But another, on another note, Neil, what I was going to say a little bit earlier in the show there when we got through with that last little segment about these uh, tight pilots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, in, in the corporate field, you didn't have to be the captain or the, or the co-captain or the flight engineer or, or a flight attendant. Let me tell you, we I, I, I flew with some guys that we could make a penny scream. And, and you know, they, they were... As tight as a bark on a tree, no matter what, they would get their per diem, and they would lock themselves in a room and live on Ritz crackers or whatever they took off the airplane so they didn't have to spend any of their, their per diem. I like, I like the captain that sent the pajamas to the laundry and stuffed right. the sock in each pocket. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh well, I see. In our, ca- in our case, they used to, uh, you know, uh, they put us on four, in four-star hotels, four and five-star hotels, yeah. Yeah. and they and they paid for all of our laundry and stuff to be done, which was ridiculous yeah. because they would charge you as much as a three three or four pack of underwear to clean <laughs> one pair of underwear in, in the in the hotel yeah. laundries, but they didn't seem to care. So yeah. we put all we wanted in there for all those years. Yeah. It was we kind of had it made on the uh, on the corporate end. We kind of got spoiled a little bit versus the airlines. Yeah. Well, uh, we're about to end our time here. And uh, Dorothy, what's coming up here for Monday? Well, for Monday we have uh, the uh, open mic that's talking about the surplus of pilots. And a couple of more subjects that you had that had come to your mind and that you wanted to squeeze in there. Not quite sure what they were, but um, following which we'll have another Eastern music and history theme, music of the 80s. And then later on we have our dreams, good and bad. Uh, so and uh, following we have quite a few. We have once upon a long time ago. So I have all of that up on the website, and our folks can take a look up there and see what's upcoming, at least for the month of June and the 1st of July. And there will be more showing shortly. Good. we got a new member, too. I'll send it to you, and you'll be able to tell us more, I guess, Monday uh, of our latest member on the website. 
Right. So, so uh, down. That's for our Monday uh, readings that I'll go through. Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, here we go. We're going to put this uh, big bird on the ground.